Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. I don't know if you grew up singing this song. I did, at least part of it. It can go on forever, like uh, Row, Row, Row Your Boat, or 99 Bottles of Beer on the Wall. It goes like this. tip of your toe to the top of your head and then it works its way back down and it can be fun or it can go on ad nauseum. There's only one thing wrong with this little song as children sing it today. Thus disjoining it, see what I did right there, disjoining it from its original intent. This song was written by these two men, James and Rosamond Weldon, Florida-born brothers sometime after 1900. James the older was an early civil rights leader, and Rosamond was the composer of uh, Lift Every Voice and Sing before his, even his 30th birthday. And they based this song that children have been singing in school on an even older Appalachian song, turning it into a spiritual. Here is their version with their refrain. To shake them skeleton bones. The inspiration for their song was Ezekiel 37. The inspiration for the original Appalachian song, whoever might have written that, was Ezekiel 37. And while the children's song, Them Bones, Them Dry Bones, is an introductory lesson to the skeletal system, the original song is about Ezekiel's most famous metaphor and vision. 
And Anna was exactly right. It is a, if you had been standing there that day, a hideous thing to see. Bodies decomposed, bringing themselves by the power of God back together. It actually reminds me of the reverse effect of the Indiana Jones movie when they finally do open up the Ark of the Covenant and everybody melts down. Well, they are put back together here. And the question is put forth, and it is the crucial question, can such bones live again? While we are connecting bones, let's connect the dots of what is happening here. And understand the context of this vision. Think of your Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, as a library with several major rooms. And you step into this library and there's a section for law, there's a section for wisdom, a section for poetry, for history, so on and so forth. One of these rooms in the Old Testament library holds a collection of books entitled The Prophets. And this room happens to be a suite. There are two rooms inside this one room. Over here we have the major prophets. Over there we have the minor prophets. Wouldn't it be terrible to be known for all of human history as a minor prophet? The major prophets, however, are exactly that. They are the most influential and they had the most to say. There are four of them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Three of these men lived at the same time, their lives overlapping. First, there is Jeremiah. He is the old man of the three. And he was in Jerusalem in the decades leading up to the destruction of the Israeli nation by the Babylonians some 600 years before Jesus. A reminder, the Jewish people have suffered persecution their entire existence. But there have been three great crises that continue to shape and to inform them. Working backwards through history. The Shoah, as they call it. The Nazi Holocaust of the 20th century. The second one, the Roman obliteration of Jerusalem. And the annihilation of the nation in the first century, just after Jesus. And then this event that provides context for Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And all these dry and dusty bones. The Babylonian destruction of, Jer of Jerusalem and the resulting deportation and captivity of the people. Jeremiah, old man that he was, saw the Babylonian destruction coming. Years before they laid siege to the city, his book in the prophetic library is a lament. He was the weeping prophet. He knew that his nation and his society was coming unwound. And no one, no one of any consequence, no one in power would listen to him. The Babylonians arrive, carnage, chaos ensue. All of Jeremiah's warnings come to pass and he lives to see it. Also living at that time is someone maybe not even yet a teenager. A youngster. His name is Daniel. The prophet Daniel. He is young. He is bright. He is handsome. He is taken as a political prisoner. And ends up. Spends the rest of his days. In what is now 
Iran. And then there is Ezekiel. He's younger than Jeremiah and certainly had to know who Jeremiah was. But he's older than Daniel. He has a wife and a family. He is a priest at the Jewish temple. When the Babylonians show up and tear it all to the ground, he's too old to take and shape his mind and break his will the way that the Babylonians hope to do to youngsters like Daniel. But he's too young and too strong, too much of an ideological leader to leave behind unattended. The mercy is that they don't kill him and his family, but they do deport him. He is shipped off to the Iraqi desert, and there he lives with and among other Jewish exiles, this dispersed community torn away from their home, and they are a broken people, crushed by the events that have taken place and by the perception that God has abandoned them, and by the desperation of being deportees, of being refugees, of being made permanently homeless. These people, torn away from their home and heritage, will never see their homeland again. Today, there are more refugees in the world than any time in human history. 100 million people attempted genocide in Myanmar and in China, war in Ukraine, protesters fleeing Iran, Venezuelans and Central Americans trying to escape murderous poverty and gang violence. Somalians starving. Syrians who can never return home because a madman holds absolute power there. Some pictures for you here. Ukrainians awaiting evacuation. A Somalian woman finally get a drink, getting a drink of reasonably clean water. Venezuelans at their border crossing, Syrians in a Turkish camp waiting on an allotment of supplies. These are human beings. Regardless of what we think and how this all came to pass, every one of these is a precious human being made in the image of God. And people like this in our world today most closely represent those to whom Ezekiel was writing and to whom Ezekiel was speaking. And they, their conclusion was that everything was dead. That's what this valley of dry bones represents. Their nation is destroyed. It is no more. Their temple, the home of the one true God, has been flattened to its foundations. Their parents and grandparents and anyone of any age have been abandoned and left behind to starve. Their children have been kidnapped and incorporated into the cogs of the conquering empire's machinery. Their boys will be worked to death or be made to forget their heritage. Their girls will become forced concubines and sex slaves. Every dream they had for a better future, every hope for a brighter day, every grasp at safety or stability, it is all gone. And it's as dead as a graveyard. That's what Ezekiel sees and understands as the future for himself and for his people. None of us have endured an experience like what I have described, not likely. But we have all stood 
in some valley somewhere, we have all felt the bones crushed beneath our feet. We have all tasted the dust in the air because we have all lost something. A dream of how we thought life would be. A hope for ourselves or for a loved one or for our children. An ideal of what we thought was coming into reality. Something maybe that we already possess, but through no real fault of our own, it's been taken away from us. A career, a marriage, a child, a home, an opportunity. We have all felt, I would guess, the despair of unanswered prayers, of a silent heaven, the internal conversation that we have with ourselves that begin with what if or if only, the anguish of loneliness, of being powerless to do anything about anything and feeling as if we have been left in the graveyard to die ourselves. And God poses the question, can these bones become living people again? And properly, Ezekiel replies, O Lord, You alone know the answer. And Ezekiel's answer to that question is, I think, the way forward for all of us in those times that we feel so uprooted and undone. Lord, only You know is a paradox. Ezekiel is at a loss himself because there's nothing he can do about any of it. He can't fix anything. He can't reverse anything. He can't connect the knee bone to the thigh bone. He can't regrow ligaments and tendons. And he certainly can't put breath back into decomposed lungs. He is helpless in response to this question. But he holds to something of faith or hope maybe. Because he says, Lord, you know. It's the admission of his powerlessness, but it is also him handing over to God all future possibilities. If there will be life in the afterword of this disaster, it will be because God knows, it will be because of what God does, and any afterword will be God's word. Tuesday of this week, we had a little work day at the Rusty Goat. That's a little farm Cindy and I bought last spring, 10 months ago now. And we are slowly, slowly transforming it into a retreat. The interior of the house has been gutted and there's a new kitchen that's been put in. The grounds are being whipped into shape. I have fresh poison oak to prove that. If you'd like to get close to me and hug me. The St. Joe Community Foundation bought the farm a tractor. And there I am on it. And it has a name. It's called Sermon. What did you do today? I was working on my sermon. Sorry. It's... Hunter Davis thought that was funny. I'm sorry. I'd really like to talk to you about what we, we hope and plan there. There's a lot of work to be done. And I try to spend a few hours there every week, and sometimes I overdo it. I'm not as young as I once was in my 
COVID-ravaged body kicks back at me sometimes. And so I've had a serious conversation with Cindy. I said to her, if you come out to the farm and you find me collapsed, and you don't know how long I've been in that condition, go inside, have a lemonade or a beer. Go ahead and call the boys. Make arrangements for the crematory. Think about where we're going to have the party. Because the last thing I want you to do is get me caught somewhere between here and there. Because if you find me in that position, I guarantee you, I'm already better than I've ever been. So, so don't, don't mess that up. Just have a beer. But I've, I've also said to her, if you see me collapse, call 911. Right? Come do CPR or something. I mean, if I have a chance, if there is time to intervene, intervene. Don't just start kicking back drinking blue moons because you see me go down. My point is that there is a major difference between doing all you can do when something can be done and accepting what is outside your strength and ability to do anything about. CPR saves lives if it is performed in a timely fashion. Defibrillators, we have one on site here, are incredibly, don't get any ideas, are incredibly effective when used immediately, as in the case of DeMar Hamlin, the young player for the Buffalo Bills who had cardiac arrest on national television in the middle of a football game, and the paddles were on him within 90 seconds. But you don't put paddles to a corpse. You don't give heart compressions to skeletal remains. You cannot resuscitate what has long died. You can only exhaust or hurt yourself. And this is the place of our deepest suffering. When we have experienced a tragedy or a loss. And we are up against something that threatens to just rip our world apart. It is the tension of that old serenity prayer. In it we pray for the courage to change the things we can. That is empowerment it is force. It is light. It is the yang of Chinese philosophy advancing toward resolution. But there is also that line where we pray, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. That is the disempowerment, the surrender and the waiting, the dark side, the yin to the yang where we can only receive reality as it is. And of course, the real challenge, the actuality in which we live, God, give me the wisdom to know the difference. When we know that difference, when we accept what is otherwise completely unacceptable because we have no power over it, that becomes the space where the power of God can actually work. For when something is truly dead and we know it and we are no longer attempting to do the work of resurrection by our own strength and we have accepted 
that something we loved or wanted or planned that we have is no more than whatever that is. What might be remade, it might be reborn, but it will be so by the higher power outside of ourselves. Elie Weissel, late Holocaust survivor and Nobel laureate, once said that of Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones has no specific location and no specific date because, quote, every single generation and every single person needs to hear this story in their own time and in their own situation. Can these bones live again? Yes. The flowers can bloom again. Spirit and breath can enter into what we thought was long gone and abandoned. But it will be by the power of God and not by or with anything that we can do. I understand that during the Holocaust, Ezekiel 37 was as powerful and as sustaining as any word of Scripture. On International Holocaust Remembrance Day on January 27th of every year, it is Ezekiel 37 that is read in synagogues across the world. Not only for Weissel, but also for this man, Israel Mayer Law. He was the former chief rabbi of Israel, chairman of Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. He was a Polish Jew born just two years before Germany invaded Poland. That is him, the little boy in the black and white picture. As a little boy, he spent six years in the Buchenwald concentration camp. His entire family outside of an older brother perished there. And in that black and white picture, there he is arriving in Israel at the port of Jaffa after the war. How did he, so tiny and vulnerable, survive? He credited his grandfather, who was also a rabbi, like Jeremiah of old, he saw what was coming. He could feel the slow rolling disaster move across Europe long before it actually did. So as soon as young Israel could speak, his grandfather made him memorize and recite back to him every day the entire chapter of Ezekiel 37. And it was the only scripture that he was able to take with him over his years of suffering. Not because it was in a book, not because it was written on paper, but because he had memorized it in his heart. As a survivor, chief rabbi of the nation so many years later, and chairman of the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, is it any surprise that he chose the words of Ezekiel 37 to adorn the gates of Yad Vashem as you enter it even today? I will put my breath into you, and you will live again. I will set you upon your own soil. Can these bones become living people again? Can what is dead be brought back only by God's Spirit and only in God's time? May we pray together. This is a prayer from a Hebrew Siddur, a Jewish prayer book. Master of the world, remember us for life with the spirit of life. Inscribed into the book of life 
for your sake, O great God of life. Be our living Redeemer, our rock in time of trouble and distress, our refuge and help when we call. Into God's hands we entrust our spirit and we shall not fear. And God's people say,